Amen. Amen. May that hymn be the prayer and the hope of every follower of Jesus Christ. Daisy follows in the path of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. She's got a little charismatic streak in her. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, this morning uh, we continue our study of Luke's gospel together. So we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. We'll read the whole portion of Scripture. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage of Scripture should be printed in your bulletin this morning. It's a unique passage of Scripture. It's a unique account about the life of Jesus Christ because it's really the only uh, record we have of a a story about Jesus when he was a boy or a teenage boy. And we're going to take a look at why this is uh, significant. A lot lot of... deep, delicious truths we could sink our teeth into this morning. For example, this passage is going to beautifully highlight the fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Uh, He has two distinct natures. He's fully God, fully man. They call it the hypostatic union of Christ. Aren't you impressed about that? i got to justify my salary some way, right? Uh, The hypostatic union of Christ means that Jesus has two distinct natures, fully God, fully man, united in one person forever. And there's going to be a couple of verses in here that are going to strike you as peculiar because you're going to wonder if Jesus is fully God, then how could he have increased in wisdom? How could he have increased in strength and favor with God and man if he was both, if he was already God? Well, John Calvin says it is obvious these verses are referring specifically to Jesus' human nature, that he increased in favor with God and man in his human nature, and he increased in wisdom in his human nature. So I don't want you to be confused by that passage of Scripture. So we're going to take a look at this passage this morning and then focus on a particular aspect of how it relates to us this morning, although there are a lot of delicious truths we could consume here this morning. So hear God's word this morning. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. May your Holy Spirit eliminate our minds today so that we might see your path clearly, how we stray repeatedly, and how we need Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little boy asked his Sunday school teacher, was Jesus potty trained? Uh, That question made the Sunday school teacher a little bit nervous because this boy had been a little bit hyper in his attendance at Sunday school. And she tried to ignore the question, but he kept on asking her and interrupting her, teacher, was Jesus potty trained? And at first she kind of scolded him about his question. And she said, well, let's not talk about that in Sunday school. And she continued with her lesson. Her lesson was this passage of scripture we read together this morning. Well, after the Sunday school class, the mother came to pick up her son to take him to 11 a.m. worship. And the Sunday school teacher explained to the mother, "Uh, your child seemed obsessed about potty training and Jesus this morning. The mother was embarrassed. And she said, I'm sorry. Potty training has been kind of a big deal at our house in the last couple of months, and it's been a big deal this week because my son has been struggling. And at that moment, the Sunday school teacher had an aha moment, and she knelt in front of the little boy, and she said, yes, Jesus had to be potty trained too. And the boy just smiled and said, so Jesus knows Jesus knows what I'm going through. That's a true story, I'm told, and it's a precious story. Because that little child wanted to know and needed to know that Jesus understood exactly what he was experiencing. Friends, every single one of you in this church this morning need to know that about your life. You need to know that Jesus understands what you're experiencing. We have some in our covenant family today that are grieving. And you need to know that Jesus understands. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. Jesus understands. He sympathizes with you today. Some of you are facing procedures or test results. And you wonder if Jesus understands what you're experiencing He does. There were many people that Jesus touched and healed that were sick and that were lame. Jesus knows. He understands. He sympathizes. Some of you have had people falsely accuse you of things. Jesus understands. Many people accuse Jesus falsely of blaspheming God's name. And there's some of you That people have unrealistic, unbiblical expectations they've placed upon you. And you need to know that Jesus understands what you're experiencing. 
The disciples had unrealistic expectations and unbiblical expectations they placed upon Jesus. They wanted Jesus to overthrow the Roman government, but Jesus said, I've not come to overthrow the Roman government. I've come here to overcome Satan, sin, and death. So what a precious truth it is this morning to know that we have a high priest who's been tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. So that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Not only that Jesus understands what you're experiencing. Not only that Jesus sympathizes with what you're experiencing. But I want us to focus today upon the significance of Jesus' perfect obedience in your place. See friends, not only does Jesus sympathize with you, but he satisfies God's law perfectly in your place. None of us are perfect in this room. I appreciate a community where people have Southern hospitality and their Southern dignity. But the reality is when we walk through these doors, we're admitting to one another and we're admitting to God, we're not perfect. And we need a perfect Savior. And so this morning, there are a lot of delicious truths we could seek our teeth into this morning. But I want us to focus in this morning on what perfect obedience to God truly involves. Only Jesus perfectly satisfied it. You never have, you never will, I never have, I never will. But I want us to see the significance of our Savior and our great need for him today. So what does perfect obedience to God involve? It involves first your actions. It involves your actions. And none of us in this room are perfectly obedient to God in what we do. But the scriptures present to us clearly the fact that Jesus was perfectly obedient to God in his actions. And we need to see ourselves in light of who Jesus is and what he did because we fall far short. I do too. And so don't think ever that I stand up here when if I'm ever, you feel like I'm pointing a finger at you, trust me, there are three other fingers pointing back at me. How does this passage relate to us the fact that Jesus was perfectly obedient in his actions to God. Well, we know that Jesus' parents were not perfect, but it records for us here the fact that they were very cautious in what they did with baby Jesus. In the passage that was before verse 39, we see that Jesus was taken to the temple to be presented as Joseph and Mary's firstborn. He was circumcised on the eighth day as it was according to the law of God. And then it says in verse 39, and when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned in Galilee to their town of Nazareth. What is it telling us here? It's telling us that even when Jesus was a baby, he was being perfectly obedient to God's law. And then we read in verses 41 and following the fact that Jesus was still perfectly obedient to God. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Why is this significant? 
Well, according to the law of God, there were three feasts that every Jewish male should attend every year. And one of those main feasts was the Feast of Passover, recording the celebration of God uh, rescuing people from slavery in Egypt. And so we read here that Jesus went up even before his bar mitzvah, which would have occurred around 13 years of age. And he's already beginning to learn what the responsibility would be to be a son of the law or son of the commandment, which is what his bar mitzvah meant. And so we read here that Jesus' earthly parents are very pious in their worship of God. In fact, according to the law of God, only the males were required to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate these three feasts. But we read here that jo- uh, that Joseph's wife, Jesus's earthly mother, Jesus's mother, Mary, attended as well. Why is that significant? The scriptures are recording for us the fact that Jesus's earthly parents were very pious in their worship of God. Very pious in their worship of God. In other words, they wanted their son to seek to be perfectly obedient to God, the Father, in his actions. And so Louis Burkhoff says this, why are these actions important? Jesus' active obedience consists in all that he did to observe the law in behalf of sinners as a condition for obtaining eternal life. See, as Christians, we tend to think about Jesus' passive obedience, which is him passively submitting himself to the cross to be crucified in our place. But before he could be a qualified substitutionary sacrifice in our place, he had to perfectly obey God's law in his active obedience. And that is what this passage is highlighting for us today. But friends, are you perfectly obedient to God in your actions? No. And neither am I. So why would we hammer this truth today so we could see our sin and see our need for a Savior. You know what one of the dangers is for a good church like us? We can become self-righteous. In fact, there's a tendency among good Bible-believing Christians and good Bible-believing churches to become self-righteous and think that we get everything right on the outside, and therefore we're right with God. And you know what? You want your children and grandchildren to be that way, don't you? You want them to act right. I get told all the time about how I follow in the footsteps of, of the great, late uh, Dr. Grady Oates, and he was very, very good about uh, discipling the children not to run in the sanctuary. Okay, and so I, I, every day I'm trying to fill some big shoes here at Bartow ARP Church. And that was good, and that's important that we need to get our children to understand how to be right on the outside with the actions. But we need to be careful as we describe what right actions look like for God because sometimes we begin to add things to the scriptures that then becomes legalism. That really isn't according to the word of God, but we've made up these man-made rules so when we walk out these doors, we can feel really good about ourselves and we can fool ourselves to think that we deserve to be in heaven because of what we've done rather than because of what Christ has done. Can I give you an example? Several years ago, serving at another church, and there was a the fine gentleman. I love this guy. His name was Tim. Tim was a construction worker, and Tim had helped remodel our house. He did a beautiful job. 
Tim was so good that the church hired him on a number of occasions to, to build some things for us. He helped build a, a handicap ramp that went into the church. It was beautiful. But I learned that Tim was terminally ill. And I went to visit Tim in his, in his home, and I wanted to have a conversation with him about his relationship with Jesus. And what I learned from Tim that day is that he thought that he was going to heaven because of how good of a guy his grandfather was. And I pressed him, I said, I'm not sure you can go to heaven that way. In fact, I know you can't go to heaven that way, but let's just say you could. What was it so great? What was so great about your grandfather? That would make God want you to go to heaven. He said, my grandfather was so holy. When people started putting indoor plumbing in their house, my grandfather refused. He said, until the day my grandfather died, when he went to the restroom, he went to the outhouse. Because he never squatted in the same building where he ate breakfast. That seems ridiculous, doesn't it? But in that gentleman's mind, he thought his grandfather had gone to heaven because of his actions. Friends, there are many people outside the church and inside the church that are fooled just the same. But because of different man-made laws they put in their mind. I don't want you to be fooled. You have not measured up, you will not measure up. And the only way you can ever measure up is that you've put your faith in a perfect Savior. And you've put your faith in His obedience in your place. So the law of God, the Apostle Paul said, is to be a tutor for you and a tutor for me, that we would see our sin, and drive us to Jesus. That's why Paul writes in Galatians 3, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, friends, what we see here in this passage is our Savior being perfectly obedient to God, first of all, in His actions, and then in His attitude. That's the second way that Jesus is perfectly obedient. This is truly what perfect obedience to God involves. It only involves the right actions, the right external things. But it also involves our attitude. Where do we see Jesus' perfect attitude in this passage? Well, in a couple of places. The first we see it in verse 43 through 46. Look at what it says. And when the feast was ended, by the way, the feast would have been seven days long. So you can imagine being on a seven-day run of worship with the Lord. And as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey. They then began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. What do we see here about Jesus' attitude? After seven days of being in Jerusalem, After seven days of worshiping around the temple, when Jesus' parents left, what did Jesus want to do? He wanted to stay. Now, time out here. I've always wondered, how do you lose the Son of God? I mean, seriously, how do you do that? 
How do you lose the Messiah? I mean, my parents used to lose me in Kmart all the time. But I only stood three apples tall, and they were all concerned about the blue light special. So how in the world did Jesus' earthly parents lose the Son of God? Here's what scholars say happened around that time. It was always the custom at the end of a celebration of the feast that the women and the children would begin making their way to a designated location first. The gentlemen would stick around in Jerusalem, deal with the cleanup. There have been a lot of sacrifices. Maybe they would assist the priests and so forth and so on. And then the men would begin making their way a day's journey. And that, later that evening, the men and the women and the children would meet up around the campfire. They would eat a meal together and they would talk about their day. And so what obviously happened was Joseph and Mary were used to raising the Son of God. You never had to worry about him. Kid never lied. He never did anything mischievous. And so Joseph assumed Jesus was with Mary. Mary assumed Jesus was with Joseph. And when they, when they meet up together around the campfire, they're both asking one another, is Jesus with you? No. Was Jesus with you? And so they've already made a day's journey away from Jerusalem. Now they have to make a day's journey back to Jerusalem. And it takes them a day to find him. And where do they find Jesus? He's in the temple. And we learn something about Jesus' attitude there in verse 46. After three days, they find him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. What is Jesus' attitude towards the worship of God? He's hungry. What is Jesus' attitude about learning the word of God? He's enthusiastic. He's teachable. He's hungry. He's excited. And it says here, rabbis are asking him questions and he's answering them, amazing them with his understanding of God's law. And the questions that Jesus is asking them is amazing them as well. How does this teach us about Jesus' perfect obedience? Jesus had a perfect attitude in his worship of God. And not only does he have a perfect attitude in his worship of God, he has a perfect attitude in his submission and obedience to his parents. We learn something very significant in verse 49, after Mary asked Jesus, why have you scared us to death, son, basically is what she's saying. We've been looking everywhere for you. Jesus asked him a question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? The way it's phrased in the Greek is that Jesus assumes that Mary's going to say, uh, respond affirmatively. Like, oh, of course. I don't know why it didn't come to my attention. I don't know why I didn't think of it, boy Jesus, that of course you would have to be here in your father's house. But Mary doesn't understand the question. She doesn't get it. That's what it says in verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And how does Jesus respond in his attitude and his actions? Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. What a wonderful truth for our teenagers to hear this morning. As you become a teenager, you learn something about your parents. They're not perfect. They make mistakes. They do things that you think, that's a little bit odd and inconsistent. So what does Jesus teach you as a teenager? 
or even as an adult child. Even when your parents make a mistake, love them, be patient with them, be submissive to them. Don't respond to their sin with sin, but learn from Jesus. Respond to their sin sinlessly. That's what we're to do. Tells us a lot about their attitude. Reminds me of a story I heard, and we'll see if you like this any better than nine o'clock did. There were these teach. There's a teacher that was trying to explain to her students where their food comes from on the kitchen table, and so she would she would yell out a type of animal, and then they would respond accordingly with the food that that animal provided. And so the teacher would scream out, "Chicken." What does a chicken give you? And the kids would say, chicken nuggets. Okay, we can debate that. But she was like, yes, that's right. The chickens give you chicken nuggets. Great. Then she said, what does a pig give you? And they said, bacon. A pig gives you bacon. She said, well, what does a big old cow give you? And they said, homework. <laughs> Yeah, that's, I don't know if it's courageous or stupid to say that in a room full of so many educators or former educators. But what did that response teach us? Something about those kids and their attitude towards their teacher. How they truly felt about her. You know, friends, as Christians, we can often fool people with our actions but we'll never fool Jesus with our attitude. Jesus not only looks at what we do, but he looks at how we do it. And what we see here in this passage of Scripture is our Lord Jesus and his purpose to God the Father. He do things right on the outside with his actions. He did it with the right attitude. He was hungry to learn from the Lord. He was submissive and obedient to his parents continuously, even when they blew it. And so what we need to see here is not only our Lord Jesus and his example, but the work of his obedience on our behalf for our salvation. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. What does that tell us about Jesus' attitude? He took the form of a servant, even though he's equal with God the Father. Being born in the likeness of men and being, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so how do we see that Jesus is perfectly obedient, knowing his actions but in his attitude, that he went to the cross willingly as a sacrificial servant. As you see yourself in the light of who Jesus is, there's no doubt that we see the fact that we do not measure up in only our actions, but in our attitude And in our aspirations, which is the last aspect of perfect obedience to God. 
is that if we're going to be perfectly obedient to God, not only do we need to be concerned about our actions, what we do, and how we do it, we need to be concerned about our motivation of why we do it. Jesus highlights what drives him in verse 49. As he told them, did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? Jesus echoes what Jesus said in John 6, for I have not come down to do come from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was, what was it that drove Jesus in his obedience to God the Father? It was his desire to glorify God. And it says here in verse 40 and in verse 52 that Jesus increased with wisdom. The word there for wisdom is the same word that would have been used in the Septuagint referring to the, the Hebrew word chokmah, which means wisdom. We, we studied the book of Proverbs this, this summer. In other words, Jesus, what drove him was the fear of Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. And so what was it that drove Jesus in his obedience to God the Father? It was a desire to glorify his heavenly Father. What drives you this morning? Why are you even here? Is it out of perfect love for God? What drives you in your morning devotions? What drives you to even try to get your your life cleaned up, so to speak? Is it love for God? Jesus said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, for a little while in your walk with Christ, you might be able to get things looking good on the outside. And that might fool your preacher, it might fool your elder, it might even fool your spouse, your friends, and your family. But you won't fool Jesus. Jesus not only looks at what we do, but he looks at how we do it and why we do it. I'm told that this is a true story about a young couple that was married And for a year or two, the husband began getting frustrated with his wife because of what she would do whenever she made him a sandwich. Whenever they went to the grocery store and got a fresh loaf of bread, the first sandwich that the wife would serve her husband would be be made up of the two hills of bread. The first couple of times, the husband kind of choked it down. He thought, this is nasty, this is disgusting. It went on for several months, finally went on for a year. And in that second year of marriage, he just decided, this is enough. And one day, his wife served him that sandwich on, on both of the heels of bread. And she smiled at him and told him that she loved him and winked at him and handed him the sandwich. And he asked, looked at her straight and he said, why do you do this to me? And she said, because I love you. He said, no, why do you do this to me? She said, what are you talking about? He said, why do you serve the sandwich with two hills of bread? I mean, that's absolutely disgusting. In my family, when we got a loaf of bread, we would pull out those two pieces and chuck it to the birds. And she stood back and she said, honey, is that what you did in your family? He said, absolutely. She said, that's not what we did in my family. In my family, that was our favorite part of the bread the loaf of bread. We used to fight over who would get the hill and the loaf of bread. 
And she said, for the last year, I've been trying to give you the best of that loaf. Not the worst of that loaf. That husband learned his wife's motivation, didn't he? In your walk with Jesus, which do you give him? Do you give him your best? Or do you give him the rest? In this verse, in these verses, we see Jesus in his perfection. Perfectly obedient to God in his actions, his attitudes, and his aspirations. May he not only be your example, but may he be the perfect Savior in whom you place your trust today. So that on the last day of your life, you can say, while I draw this fleeting breath, and when I close my eyelids in death, And when I soar to worlds unknown and see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the rock of our salvation. Thank you that you not only sympathize with us, but in your perfect obedience, you satisfy all of God's law for us in our place. Help us to cling to who you are and what you've done for us. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.